the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 3, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Yura Kushnovskaya, and our guest host, Dr. John Ong. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss leading a team with Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Before we get started with that, Yura, will you remind the audience what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Michelle Kittleson, tonight. We cover really tons of pearls around transitions and training, kind of leadership roles um, and leadership development. And we're pumped to have John join us today. John, you've done so much amazing work behind the scenes for Curbsiders Teach. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely, Ira. Hi, everyone. My name is John. I'm currently a third-year internal medicine resident at Mountain View Hospital and incoming nephrology fellow at USC. Um, some things that I like to do, I like to watch cooking shows and try to emulate some of the recipes that I see. Uh, and, to, and to introduce our guest, Dr. Michelle Kittleson is professor of medicine at Cedars-Sinai and director of education in heart failure and transplantation at the Smith Heart Institute. Dr. Kittleson is deputy editor of the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation on writing committees for the 2020 Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Guidelines and the 2022 Heart Failure Guidelines and on the board of directors for the Heart Failure Society of America. Her essays have appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Internal Medicine and JAMA Cardiology and Poems in JAMA and Annals of Internal Medicine. Her book, Mastering the Art of Patient Care, is available from Springer Publishing. And thank you to our listeners who have joined our Patreon. To those who love the show but haven't yet, please know that your donation helps support us and keep our podcast accessible and of high quality. A reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's, let's get, get to it. it. Uh, Dr. Kittleson, thank you so much for coming on the show. To start with, we like to um, have some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Um, first of all, are you okay if we call you by your first name for this recording? Yes, that would be great. Well, and Michelle, could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. So I am Michelle Kittleson, a heart failure transplant cardiologist at Cedar sinai in sunny Los Angeles, California. My greatest passion is taking the best possible care I can of patients and helping others to do the same. Wow, I feel like I was just like emboldened with your passion. So that was that was an, that was incredible. And um, I guess also a huge congratula congratulations is due for publishing your first book, Mastering the Art of Patient Care. Wonder what surprised you the most about the process of writing this book, getting it published, kind of from start to finish? Well, I like the fact that you said first book. Thank you for your faith in me and my future productivity. So the book started honestly with, with Twitter. I joined Twitter in 2018, 2019, and I started putting little pearls on there, things I would say on rounds. And one of my fellows, because we always learn from our trainees, said to me, you should put this stuff on Twitter. And I started doing that. And then one of my mentors reached out to me and said, you got to put this in a book. If you don't, someone else will. 
I said, okay. So then I sat down and I made an outline because I crave structure. And I said, what are the things I'd want to know? What, what, what are these little tweets encompass? And then that turned into writing a little bit every day. So building your medical foundation, honing your clinical judgment, establishing your medical style, optimizing care of patients and yourself. Those are the sections sub uh all kinds of sub little categories every morning must write for at least 30 minutes and out of that a book emerged so dr kilson just want to know uh can you tell us some meaningful advice or feedback that you received during your career training yes and i'm actually going to flip it a little bit and tell you about a bad feedback experience that I had and everything I learned from it. So picture this, I'm a cardiology fellow, I'm super eager, I wanna give the best care I can to my patients and I wanna inculcate all the trainees below me, the medical students and the residents with my way of being. I'm in the CCU, I'm in the thick of it, I'm having the best time ever. Fast forward like a month or two or three later and I get feedback on that rotation. And even though all the feedback is anonymous, I know which attending physician wrote it because you just know the dates you were there, et cetera. And I still remember now over two decades later what he wrote on that form. And he wrote, Michelle is controlling and overly prescriptive of the house staff. I mean, I can word for word. And it was awful in so many ways. Now it might've been true, but it was still awful. It was awful because number one, it was not timely. I don't know exactly what I did to inspire that. Was it because I micromanaged a furosemide dose or because I said, you can absolutely not give IV heparin to someone with a subdural? I, I don't know. Number two, it, it wasn't specific in that way. It, it was completely out of context. He didn't give me any strategies for improvement. Like, hmm, let the trainees talk a little bit more before you jump in. That would have been helpful. Yeah. And because it wasn't timely, there was no follow-up. He couldn't say, I told you this in the middle of rotation, and by the end, you've gotten better. So I took that experience and really how awful it made me feel and tried to do better now when I give feedback to people. That's great. Well, thank you for that. So here I, I know you always have picks of the week that you're excited to share. Would you uh, want to share one with us today? Totally. Um, so we talked about escapist uh, television on various episodes, but I'd like to share if anybody wants some escapist fiction. I recently read um, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Stenfeld, and this is the same writer. She wrote Rodham, which is a fictional account of if Hillary Clinton had never met Bill Clinton. So who is Hillary without Bill? Um, so really kind of imagining another life uh, for her. Hillary Rodham, but the one that I'm plugging today is romantic comedy, and it's basically loosely about um, a this night kind of comedy sketch called The Night Owls, which is based on SNL, and it's a writer, um, Sally Miltz, who's on there, and she develops this Danny Horse rule, which what that means is that it's kind of like a sketch show, uh, comedy show where the talented... Um, uh, kind of comedy writers often are men who are dating women who are like goddess-like or like very beautiful. And that rule does not apply in the reverse. Like there's not like a, you know, plain woman dating a beautiful man, male actor or something like that. So that's kind of this rule that she sets up as a comedy writer. And the book follows kind of her life on this comedy show and things that happen. And it's, um you know, loosely based, I'm not going to say actually who it's based on because the author 
you know, doesn't give that away. But there's many people um, who are writers on SNL or have been writers on SNL and have very similar lives. So if somebody wants escapist fiction, please check out Romantic Comedy by Curtis uh, Sittenfeld. And John, I think you have a pick of the week as well. Yes, Ira. So to kind of build up on that cooking show competition, um, there is a series on Netflix called Easy Bake Battle. And what it is, is that there are people who are presented with a recipe and they have certain things that they have to cook. And uh, there's two rounds. One round, they're pretty much given uh, free reign to cook whatever they want with whatever ingredients they have. And then in the second part, they have to use an easy bake oven as their main source of cooking. And one of the recipes that I took from that is the one pot pasta, which I've never seen before, but I tried it one time and I'm actually presently surprised with how it works. And I think that's something that I'm going to start incorporating in my own cooking and uh, dinner plans in the very near future. Well, the Easy Bake yeah. Oven just takes me back to like the early 90s when yeah. it would be like this pink box that maybe set things on fire. Yes. So yeah. that's what I was thinking too. Version today. Yeah, it pretty <laughs> much it's so just much. like a big oven that's at so this cool. point, yeah, which is nice. Yeah. I like the one pot pasta recipe. That sounds like doable and kind of like, I don't know, a little creative too. That's awesome. Excellent inspiration. And Ira, I didn't know that people wrote like alternative version fiction about like Hillary Clinton. I thought it was more like if the Soviets had won the Cold War. Like. <laughs> I I know. Well, she published it in like 2020 spring where like COVID had just hit. So like, I don't th- know how many people read about or read it or, you know, saw it because there were so many else, so many other things, going, other on things going on in the world. Yes. But how yeah. cool would that be? Like I really, now I want to know, like what is Hillary's life looking like in this alternate world without Bill? <laughs> Amazing. Well, since on, on the, the vein of cooking shows, um, I think it's on Netflix. Um, my son and I like to watch Is It Cake? I don't know if you guys yes. have seen that. Mm-hmm. So it's they make these ridiculous creations that look like a shoe or like a suitcase or something. And then the host has to try to decide which one is cake and which one is real. So it's just a fun escapist. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's so much good escapist television and fiction. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, John, do you mind starting us off with a case from Cashlack Memorial? Uh, so our case from Cashlack Memorial, Cameron, he's a second-year internal medicine resident who's nervous to lead a team for the first time. As an intern, Cameron always had a safety net and could look for help when he needed it. Although he had a great senior resident, or although he had great senior residents as role models during his intern year, he isn't quite sure how to transition from his role to an intern to a senior resident. Now that he has to be the leader, he is wondering how to make this transition as smooth as possible. Uh, Michelle, your new book covers a lot of the transitions and leadership roles in medical education. You discuss the roles of the hidden curriculum and, and give trainees a guide through the process. How do you think about leadership development as an important aspect to a physician's, or more specifically, a clinician educator's role? I love that question because we spend so much time in medical school, so much valuable time learning the mysteries of the human body. But a huge part of medicine is communicating those mysteries, 
not just to your patients, but to the people you work with. And I love the fact that medicine is an apprenticeship. There's so much we learn by doing. And I think leadership development is hugely important. And there's a lot of ways to learn this. You know, first of all, you just have to have the initiative, right? You want to grow and improve. And when you want to grow and improve, you've made that decision. Well, you can learn from your own experience. As Eleanor Roosevelt said, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. So I would advise instead of your own bitter experience, learn from those around you. And then the next question is, how do you learn from those around you? Well, you may have access to formal leadership training. You may turn to my book. You may rely on trusted mentors to debrief in uh, uncertain situations. But you're exactly right. There is a hidden curriculum on not just how to know the science, but to be an effective physician, all those other important parts of compassion and communication. And it starts with the desire to get there. So Cameron does have that desire and uh, he's excited about moving up to be a senior resident, but also you know, feeling pretty nervous, overwhelmed, which is very common among end of year interns. Um, with his new role as resident on the team, he has more of these responsibilities and leadership. How do you suggest Cameron best navigate this new role? Are there frameworks that you like to use to approach this key transition? No question. And I think the first thing is to recognize it is scary and it should be scary, but you have all the tools to continue to take great care of patients and help others to do the same. I have this I have this mantra in life in general and in medicine in particular, which is don't worry, make a plan. Transform your nebulous fears into a concrete action plan. So how do you do that in this situation? Number one really is preparation. The more you're prepared, envision what are the characteristics of a good second year resident, you can then prepare to implement that with your team. And to me, that starts with how should rounds be structured? Because just like children, I have a lot of experience with them, not because I'm a pediatrician, but because I have three of my own. Just like children thrive with structure, so do, I think, do all of us and trainees. So have a clear idea of how you want rounds to go and have clear communication on those expectations of that structure. The other thing I found really helpful is I'm not the kind of person that thinks well on my feet. I would not be a great cardiothoracic surgeon if like blood started spurting and hit the ceiling of the operating room. I would faint dead away. I like to prepare. So prepare your teaching pearls in advance. And I think one way to lessen that fear is to have this plan. What's the structure going to be like? What are my teaching pearls that I can prepare? And then you'll have that confidence when you get there. Now that's not gonna work perfectly. And there will be tough situations. Sometimes they're clinical, sometimes they're interpersonal. And that's why you have trusted mentors and colleagues you can get by with a little help from your friends when you're going through this transition. Michelle, I love that. It kind of a very practical approach of starting from don't worry, make a plan, prepare, 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 envision. Like I really like that visioning exercise that you're sharing and, and really making it clear that part of that vision is a structure uh, in which you are going to be running rounds and sharing pearls and kind of um, involving the team. Um, are there 
I don't know, any um, resources you share with maybe uh, cardiology fellows or maybe other trainees or even in faculty development um, to help kind of provide further structure on that, on either leadership transitions or kind of before we get into Cameron's case, but like especially transitioning from one maybe type of role kind of to a different one where there's more responsibility, more leadership. Yeah, what what a wonderful point. And I would say, I don't think, at least in my experience, many of those formal teaching uh, implements don't exist. I think that was sort of the void in which I, my, I put my book in that here are ways you can, uh, my strategies for how do you structure rounds? How do you prepare in advance? How do you envision what rounds should look like and then implement that in practice? So before the book really for me was sort of a grassroots effort, people come to me, I love to offer advice, the more the better. And and going through, this is how I think you can handle it. And you, know, you learn as well from good experiences as bad, as my feedback story said. So I, I think there's also a way of modeling yourself after those that were effective before you. Um, so actually my style of rounds is often referred to as Kittleson rounds, just because it's it's sort of this impl- this this practice I've put forth and implemented and uh, and trademarked, not really. So I, I'd say I wish there were formal implementation tools for this. I think all of this is so much, the hidden curriculum is so much of a grassroots effort. That being said, I, I think having a formal structure um, can be hugely helpful. Well, now you have to tell us, what are kittles and rounds? And are you telling Cameron to do those kittles and rounds like off the off the bat? hundred percent. None of this is a secret. I'm not keeping it all for myself. <laughs> I want everyone to know. So Cameron, this is what you're going to do. So first, think about streamlining rounds because rounds can be interminable. And I always felt badly when you're sitting through those interminable rounds as a trainee that the last patient never gets the same attention as the first patient, and that is not okay. So how do you make that better? Number one, I'm a big believer in the one-liner and straight-to-plan-by system. Why do I like that approach? Because it encapsulates the most important things of a patient. And if you can encapsulate the important things about your patient to one line, that's already an important skill of prioritization. And then if you go straight to plan by problem or system, whatever you like, not going through the vitals and the exam and the laboratories and the imaging studies, meaning go straight from the one liner to the A and P, that I think allows enough dedicated time to what truly matters for each patient. And if it was a truly important SO but that you did that you skipped over, you will get to it in your A and P. But then you'd have to say to yourself, wait a minute, if my trainee is only giving me an A and P, I better know a little bit about the S and the O, the subjective and the objective that we are glossing over, which leads to the second thing I'm going to tell Cameron, which is the value of pre-rounding. So I used to think when I was an intern, you know, the second year residents just going to stroll into the unit with a cup of coffee and I'm going to tell them everything and they're going to sit back and then, you know, pronounce what the plan for the day is. I've realized that pre-rounding is not just for med students. It's not just for interns. It is a skill that will help you throughout your life. And by that, I don't mean go in and wake up the patient to listen to their lungs when they're half asleep. No, I never think that's right. But it means looking through the chart. Thank goodness for electronic medical records that so many of us have. What were the vitals overnight? What new orders were written? 
what does the nursing note say? Treasure trove of all kinds of facts you might not otherwise know about. Mentally prepare through your review of the objective data what's right for the patient. And I, I like to say it's often harder to be a second or third year resident because you have to know everything and say nothing or say very little, right? You're letting your your intern and your medical student you know, run the show, but you still have to know everything. Um, so streamline rounds, pre-round. And when you do this, then when you actually have the rounds itself, you're not wasting time during rounds comparing, uh, confirming that what your trainee said was accurate because you've already done the due diligence on your end and you can critique the quality of their effectiveness of their presentations. You've taken the time to think about your, the issues and formulate the management strategy so that you don't have to waste time sort of dithering on rounds as you teach. And second, you can also look uh, devote more time to teaching because you can prepare a pearl and you're not spending the time as the residents watch you looking up stuff that needs confirmation. So I think I can't give a huge enough plug to the importance of preparation, even if you're not on the front lines presenting the data. Uh, Michelle, how, how would you advise Cameron on intentionally making space on rounds for this? So I think it's really important when you're running rounds, you're trying to think about a way to empower medical students and interns to progress in their learning and show their work, really grow in their management reasoning. So how do you do that? So I have a very systematic approach to the assessment and plan. So no matter what, you start by stating the system, let's say cardiology, and then you state the, the problem within that system, let's say heart failure. And then you have to say, number one assessment, is the problem getting better, worse, or staying the same? So cardiology, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, admitted with decompensated heart failure, the volume status is improving compared to yesterday. Then you provide a plan for the day. Um, today, I'm going to continue the Lasix at 40 milligrams IV twice daily. The reason I'm going to do this, he remains volume overload, but had a good response yesterday. So the same dose today should achieve our goal of two liters negative. And I think that's important to have an anatomy of the plan, which is an assessment of how is the patient progressing? What is your tool and what is your goal? assessment of trajectory, tool, and goal. And you get bonus points if at the end you say, the goal of this hospitalization is for the patient to be discharged home on oral therapy. I predict that we are not there yet because I'm estimating that there's still uh, five liters left of fluid for diuresis. So that's how I like to, and I think that will work with any organ system will work with any problem and allows you, rather than being a waiter who says, the, uh, this, the, the patient today is uh, wet, what would you like to do? You're being more of a captain in your approach and driving the ship. That is a lovely, clear presentation that really gets a lot of information in a short time. Um, hopefully we can all encourage our, our learners to get to your level of, <laughs> of clarity there. Um, how do you help encourage healthy debate as a leader and why is that important on rounds? I love debate for many, many reasons. I, I think, you know, in life in general and in medicine in particular, it is so important 
to be able to talk through disagreements to come to a place of consensus. The patients benefit, the trainee benefits, the attending physician benefits. So if I sense, and I think we're all pretty good at reading people, right? That's a part of a skill of being a physician. You you can look, you know micro expressions, body language. So sometimes even if a trainee isn't overtly saying, I disagree with you, you can sense when they're not buying what you're selling. And my approach is to normalize that elephant in the room of a trainee perhaps being worried about disagreeing with you know, the feared supreme leader, Dr. Kittleson. So normalize the elephant in the room with enthusiasm and kindness. So what I say is, I sense that you don't agree with me and I think that's great because I love to debate medical issues Tell me where you're coming from. Let's see where we can talk about it some more and make sense of this issue. And that way, trainees learn that respectful disagreement is possible. Rounds become a safe space where you're, where you're learning without fear. You're being perceived as not lacking aptitude. They feel comfortable asking questions. And it even helps the person leading rounds in that your ability to explain a concept makes you understand it better. And you may come up with something you hadn't thought about so the patient gets better care. So it's a win-win. But the key is call it out kindly, enthusiastically, and talk through the issues. And Michelle, you've mentioned like the kindness aspect a few times. And, you know, I'd love to hear obviously more aspects that go into your understanding of leadership development or what that looks like. But how do you kind of infuse kindness into that model of a physician leader separate from it sounds like encouraging healthy debate? Like where else does that come in? You know, I've learned kindness uh, through two places. The extraordinary mentors I've had and through my own mistakes. So I'll tell you about one of my mistakes. Um, I never enjoyed being called in the middle of the night. And as a trainee, as a resident and as a fellow, I'd often have to answer the phone in the middle of the night and I'd say, what's your emergency? Like that was literally my go-to line. The subtle subtext being, I'm not sure why you're bothering me and I don't want to be bothered by you. And I would use that line with uh, medical people with patients who called me. Listen, I'm owning it up. It was not the right approach. How did I discover it wasn't the right approach? Well, speaking of those three children I have, one night, one of them had a fever. And you know how like when you're a parent, you're like 99.4, that's higher than he usually runs. And then the doctor in you says 100.4 is a fever. But the parent in you says, but it's higher than it was. So you call in the middle of the night, you sit through that weird phone phone tree, or you're not sure which button to press. Then you have to wait for the answering service. Then they have to call you back, but you don't want the phone to ring or the rest of the family is going to wake up and you're already in this maelstrom of just anxiety and fear for your poor kid when they finally answer you. And that happened to me. And the pediatrician's first words to me were, how can I help? And it was like the most amazing transformation. And it was a light bulb went off. And I said, oh my gosh, because being rude will not stop people from calling you. It just makes the call more unpleasant. So now my go-to when anyone calls me, how can I help? And it sets the most incredible tone for our subsequent encounters. So the first thing I think is approach any situation with how can I help? Now, you may in the middle of the situation realize this really is not the greatest call and I don't want to be on it but you start out with a place of openness and kindness. Number two, 
when you you start to realize that the farther along you get in your training and your career, it's not that you actually become smarter, but people are nicer to you. They're nice with you kind of because they have to be because you're higher up on the totem pole, but you cannot take that for granted. So I remember a situation when I was a junior attending physician. I had to go in and round on this patient and And then I came back later with one of my senior attending physicians. So I was a fully fledged attending physician, but more junior. And we walk in the room and the patient says to this world expert I'm rounding with, you brought your, uh, I guess you're rounding with a flunky now. And that was just kind of her personality. That was the kind of cutting remark she would give to a doctor. You know, she'd want to, you know, you're forged in fire when you had to take care of her. And and she really respected this, this wonderful, more senior physician. And he turned to her and he said... Dr. Kittleson has gone through and, you know, whatever the years of training, blah, blah, blah. And she is an absolutely skilled physician and it's not right or fair to speak to her that way. And he was so calm about it. He was so kind, but he defended me. And, you know, I think medical training is thousands of tiny paper cuts to your confidence and you just kind of get a nerd to them after a while. And this was an extraordinary lesson to me in defend your team. And there's different ways to defend your team. Number one, It is another trainee who you supervise who is being unkind in some way. You sit them down, you talk about it. Number two, it's a staff member who's not in your chain of command, an ancillary staff member. Then I go to that person's supervisor and say, what's the best way for us to deal with this? Ditto if it's another physician who's in a different structure of organization, go to their supervisor. Or if it's a colleague of mine, then it's my response. So I think there's different ways to deal with it, but you have to address it. And then the final kindness, you know, I think is when you, when someone needs help, you can see that they're struggling, uh, overwhelmed with whatever level of responsibility or duties they have in front of them at that moment. Sometimes rather than offering to help, it's so much more wonderful to make a plan to help. So one of my colleagues has a huge echo cue that they have to read through all these echocardiograms and they're just drowning because of some personal thing or they've been out of work for, and instead of saying, can I read some echoes? Say, listen, I just took 10 of those and I took care of them. So I think not, don't just make an offer, making a plan to help is a real big component of kindness. Well, Michelle, thank you for that example because I'm going to nephrology fellowship next year and I anticipate getting some of those phone calls in the middle of the night and I will not say what's your emergency. So thank you for that example. I will now say, how can I help? And hopefully I can make a good impression on some other people calling me in the middle of the night. What do you see as some of the other more challenging transition a, a physician experiences, you know, going from intern year to second year, um, second year to attending or fellow and then fellow to attending, et cetera? Yeah, I think what characterizes every tough transition is that you have to familiarize yourself with an entirely new skill set and workflow with increasing levels of leadership and responsibility. So for me, the scariest years for me were being a third-year medical student, a second-year resident, a first-year fellow and a first-year attending physician. Because at all of these points, you're doing something you really haven't done before. And, And I think the key in all these situations is don't worry, make a plan, and then remember, envision what you think success involves. Look to your past experiences 
and rely on your trusted mentors and colleagues. Really, that, that's the key. And you'll find there are going to be so many situations where you're unsure of what you did. Was it right? Sometimes in real time, you'll reach out for help. Or sometimes in retrospect, you'll debrief with someone you trust to figure out what are the teaching points here that I can do better. And you mentioned those trusted mentor-mentee relationships a few times. Do you have some tips for learners of really how to build those relationships and how they can most benefit from them? Yes, uh, no question. So I would say the first and most important thing is what is a mentor? And to me, a mentor is a role model. And what's a role model? A role model is someone you want to be like when you grow up. So step one is you look around and say, I want to be like that person. And then I think the next question is to go up to them and say, hey, can I schedule a meeting with you? Because I would love some advice on X, Y, or Z. One of two things can happen. They may say no, or they may say yes. And if they say no, then they wouldn't have been a good mentor anyway. You passed the first <laughs> test. You winnowed it down to someone who's really going to be useful. And then when you get there, you got to ask the right questions. And I was the kind of person that when I was in college, I was totally intimidated by like the professors. I mean, they were so light years ahead of me. How could I even know what question to ask in their presence? What I've realized now kind of on the other side of that equation is that everyone likes talking about themselves and you're gonna learn a lot from people by hearing about their journey. So my favorite question to ask someone who I admire is, How'd you end up here? And you will find so many interesting tips about you know the power of serendipity, chance favoring the mind that it's prepared, being prepared, and just beautiful stories that can, can apply to your own life. And the last point I'll make is you're not gonna have just one mentor. You shouldn't have just one mentor. You should have a cabinet of mentors. There might be someone you go to with thorny, medical issues, another person you go to when you've got a difficult interpersonal conflict, someone else you want to talk about work-life balance, someone else for research. And you might have mentors with different clinical styles. You know how if you want something, you might go to dad if you want a yes and mom if you want to no, right? Same with you might have a mentor who's a more minimalist and a mentor who's more of a tester, and then that will help you. So assemble widely throughout your career, collect those mentors. Some will be fleeting and you only use for a little bit. Some relationships you'll cultivate for decades, but you can keep that alive. And everyone enjoys, I think, the joy of sharing their own wisdom and experience. Michelle, I love that you call it a mentor cabinet. I've heard it called a mentor map or, you know, mentor network, but like cabinet makes it feel like presidential and official. Exactly so it. I love that. <laughs> um, one thing I was thinking is that as you went mentioned, like those kind of specific moments of really a new responsibility, new environment, like third year medical student, second year resident, first year fellow, first year attending. I wonder during those times, I can imagine it's also a moment of realizing you can't possibly know everything. Did you have people, maybe mentors in your mentor cabinet who role modeled that uncertainty and kind of that tolerance of uncertainty? Or maybe you were, you know, one of those skilled people who were able to be comfortable with uncertainty during those really intense transitions. And like, how did that kind of, um, you know, unfold for you? Oh, you know, that's such a good question because I, I truly believe that one of the reasons those transitions are some of the most exhausting times of my life and many of my colleagues who I've talked to about this is, is, that, is that the exhaustion of uncertainty, the exhaustion of not quite knowing if you're doing exactly the right thing. And I think, you know, so we're not going to worry. We're going to make a plan. <laughs> we're we're going to recognize that you can't know everything. And the most important thing to know is how to ask the right 
questions. Uh, and I try to model that for trainees. I try to model my thinking out loud process where you don't have to know all the diagno differential diagnoses. You don't even have to know all the treatment algorithms, but you kind of got to know where to look. So I might model for trainees rounding me. Well, we've got this patient we've admitted with heart failure and their total bilirubin is 12 and most of it is direct. You know, when I see a patient with heart failure, I know there's a lot of reasons for the bilirubin to be elevated. Let's look up together what UpToDate says about the 10 causes of an elevated bilirubin. Okay, as we look through these causes, I mean, heart failure is likely the most common one, but I'm really concerned about X, Y, or Z. What would be the right test? So you can model for them how you go through the process. That's one way, model looking it up. Number two, I think the other thing you can teach trainees is the art of calling a consult. So we all know the most important rule of calling a consult is to call them early. But the second most important rule is to ask the right question. And, and the art of knowing what is the question you're asking the consultant, I think is a form of knowing, I don't have to know everything, but I have to know what to ask. And the final thing I'll say is, you know, I'm, I'm glad I survived medical school, which felt more than anything else, like just learning a foreign language, the drudgery of vocabulary and grammar. Uh, but you need to do that. That's a necessary evil. So you can appreciate the poetry of medicine one day. But once you're out of that, the key is patient-directed reading. Patient-directed reading is the best reading. So you approach your uncertainty by doing the patient-directed reading when you're in the thick of it. And when you're now the person the uh, tra training, you normalize that uncertainty by modeling, looking it up, and teaching your trainees how to ask the right questions. Michelle, I think it's great that uh, you think out loud and show your you train needs exactly what your thought process is because I, I do think that a lot of times when we read notes, when there's no explanation, it goes from point A to point B and making that connection, I think is the most important part. Just so, you know, you teach someone how to fish, you don't just give them the fish. And so you're essentially teaching them how to fish, which I think is a, a great thing to do as a clinician educator. Uh, specifically for Ear and Molly, as early attendings, uh, I'm sure giving up some of that control early on and trusting your trainees was challenging. Uh, what tips do you have for early attendings to avoid micromanaging and allowing your learners to develop their own practice style and consider trialing safe alternatives? That is a really important question, and especially for me, because as I told you from the feedback I received as a fellow that I was a micromanager. So I'll tell you how you do this. Because remember, the most important goal is optimal patient care. And you figure out what's negotiable and what's not. So all my examples are going to be cardiology examples, right? So here, let, let's give examples. What's a negotiable thing? Well, the dose of IV furosemide in a stable patient with decompensated heart failure. What's not negotiable? the use of IV heparin in patients with a mechanical mitral valve and atrial fibrillation as a bridge when they're off their warfarin. So you have to figure out where there is room to give and where there isn't. And when there isn't, I call it out. I'll say, it might sound like I'm micromanaging you, and maybe I am, but this is the reason why we cannot compromise on this particular medical fact. 
other times it is negotiable, but I do, I feel in my heart, no pun intended, that furosemide 80 milligrams is the best dose. I just know it. I don't know how I know it. I just know it because I've been doing this forever, but you do want to give your trainee some leeway. So what do I say in that situation? I say, all right, my two decades of experience and gray hair tell me that 80 is probably the right dose, but you want 40. I'm totally cool with that. But you have to give me a contingency plan. If you don't get X result by Y time, you will do Z. And then they'll make, well, if they're not three liters negative by the 20 hundred, then I'm going to do that. So, and I, that's wonderful. Then everyone wins. The, the uh, trainee wins because now they've modeled more decision-making. You win because you're the cool, relaxed attending that doesn't micromanage. And the patient wins because regardless, they're going to get the best care because a delay of the quote-unquote right dose of furosemide for a few hours is not going to be the end of the world. So I think that's really the key is you figure out what's negotiable and what's not. And you clearly explain when you seem to be micromanaging versus not with contingencies to resolve your compulsive tendencies as you're in that process. Uh, well, these there have just been so many great pearls and, and you really have so much to share. Um, in the interest of time, just kind of to start to wrap things up, you know, we all want all of our trainees to progress and have the confidence to be leaders. How, in general, do you think we can support them in this? So I've always felt that one of the characteristics of a great leader is that they can do your job as well as you, and they know exactly what it entails. They're just not doing it because now they're leading you and doing it, but you don't, they're not disconnected from you. They're not one of those clueless leaders. They are a leader who's already been in the trenches and proven themselves, and that's why they've ascended. So I think for anyone who desires to be a future leader in clinical medicine, you first have to be a great foot soldier. You have to learn to take great care of patients. So consume yourself, absorb yourself, immerse yourself in the taking care of patients. Learn by doing, learn by role modeling, learn by patient-directed reading. And I think you will find as you do that, that you will start to encompass those skills that will make you a great leader and if you are at some point interested in formal leadership training programs, you'll discover that you'll have a good context to put them in because you put that time in place to make sure the building blocks of outstanding clinical care are there. Well, I think actually that's a great point because I, I love that you were giving the context of like the leadership development. Are there specific even curricula or I know we talked about resources earlier and, and uh, you provided us kindly with like your grassroots resources in the book, but are there um, even curricula that you think about or like for yourself as a, uh, you know, faculty experienced in this realm, are there places that you go to for that leadership development or organizations, anything like that, that you want to share with the listeners? I think the fact that people are talking about this in medicine is so great because, you know, when I was in medical school, walking back and forth uphill through the blizzards decades ago, Barefoot. It, it, was sort of, yeah. it was sort of one of those things that no one, no one talked about the importance of thinking about being a good teacher, being a good leader. So I think it's wonderful. I'm, I'm not aware of any of this. And that's for me, so much of what I came up with was those snippets from mentors or the mistakes that I made. And, and that's why it felt important to me to just put it all out there in this very well-organized book. But I, I, think, I think it's a great point because we are so much beholden to the mentors we've encountered 
both good and bad experiences we've had that have shaped us, but it shouldn't come down to luck. It shouldn't come down to proximity. And that's one of the reasons for me, it felt important to all these little things I know that really work, kind of putting it down, putting it together. Well, in that highly organized, incredible book, are there, we couldn't cover all the chapters, obviously. Um, were there others, Michelle, that you wanted to like briefly highlight that we wanted, that we maybe have missed today or things that you specifically want to plug for kind of clinician educators? Absolutely. You know, I think for any trainees or even uh, attending physicians reading this book, I think chapter two talks about how to deliver an outstanding oral presentation and write the best possible note. I think that's incredibly important for one in training to develop those good skills early on. Doesn't have to be long. It can be short, concise, clear communication, but what are the essential components? And for then someone now on the other end listening to these things, what are those important tenets I can provide advice to make my trainee shine. Because the clearer you speak, the clearer you think. It's a positive feedback loop. So become a good communicator from the start. The second chapter I think is really important to me is chapter nine, which covers the tough conversations in medicine. How do you give bad news? What do you do when a patient disagrees with you? Those sorts of things are very difficult to navigate and sort of uh, the experience I've had and trying to do that effectively. So much more for our listeners to check out on the book. Um, are, do you have any main take-home points around kind of transitions and roles or in leadership? Yes. I think the number one is don't worry, make a plan. <laughs> Two, when in doubt, ask for help. And three, remember, don't ever forget and take for granted the enormous privilege we have in the ability to improve and save lives. That's awesome. Is there anything yes. else that we need to plug, Michelle? I know we plugged the amazing book, obviously, but was there anything else that you wanted to put out there? No, you guys are great. That was beautifully comprehensive. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has really been wonderful. Well, that was such a great conversation with Dr. Michelle Kittleson. She just really brings a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of experience, and a lot of pearls. So, John, what, what kind of take-homes do you have from this episode? I think that my favorite thing that I heard from Michelle is just really modeling and thinking out loud and just trying to show your trainees this is how I think of a problem and that way you really teach them on how to go about a certain problem rather than just telling them this is A and then this is just what you're going to do without any explanation. And Ira? Yeah, I agree. I feel like, John, I loved how Michelle was like, just name it. Name what you're doing. If you're if you're worried that you're micromanaging, explain that it might seem like I'm micromanaging, but here's, you know, what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking it that thinking this way. And I also feel like her um uh kind of whole segment was really uh, focused on like anxiolysis, like kind of just like bringing the energy and the anxiety down, like, don't worry, make a plan or like lean into the uncertainty and kind of here's, here's the skill sets or here's the little micro tools I would offer. So really felt uh, a anxiolysis during this episode. Molly, what about you? I loved her um, kind of approach to helping uh, healthy debate um, so that, you know, if you're an attending and you kind of get that sense that the learner is not really on board with what you're recommending or forcing them to do, uh, you know, explicitly saying that, saying like, hey, I can see that this this doesn't look like what you would choose to do. Like, I, I love to talk about this. I love to debate medicine, just really putting it out there and 
um, encouraging that dialogue very explicitly, I think is, is a great uh, recommendation. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project. Thanks to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to the team at Podface for editing our audio. Thanks to our social media team, Andrew Delat on Instagram and John Ung on Twitter and the team at Podpaste on our website. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoytline. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. I've been John Ong. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krasnovskaya. Thank you so much for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.